This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. For the first time, the Supreme Court heard arguments this week challenging a broad interpretation of the nation's only major anti-hacking law. And many of the justices questioned the innocuous acts the law could criminalize. Here are Justices Samuel Alito, Elena Kagan, and Stephen Breyer. Take the example of the person who puts, who lies about weight on a dating website. How would that be a violation of this statute? An employee checking Instagram at work. How is that obtaining or altering information? Your employer tells you, Mr. Jones, you work for me. Here is a PC. You will get all kinds of emails in this PC. You are never to use this email for a personal purpose. Joining me is David Thaw, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School. David, the case before the court involved a police officer who was convicted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for taking a bribe to look up a license plate in the police database. What was the basic issue confronting the justices here? This is an issue that has been circulating around for a couple of decades in various forms. And on its surface, it sounds very simple, which is when someone who's using a computer that they have access to does something on that computer that they're not supposed to do, but they're technologically able to do, is that a violation of the federal anti-hacking statute, which prohibits not just unauthorized access, but exceeding your authorized access? So on its face, it sounds like if you do something that you're not supposed to do, you are exceeding your authorized access. The problem is that in practice, with modern computing and information systems, what you're, quote, not supposed to do, unquote, is a much more complex question than simply are you allowed to access a given file on a computer, which was quite literally what the United States Congress was talking about in 1986 when it adopted the current version of the statute that's in question. What we're dealing with today are questions about complex sets of agreements and policies and contracts and many other things, even sometimes verbal instructions, for example, from an employer to an employee regarding what a person can and can't do with a computational device that they may carry around with them at all times and use for multiple purposes. Some of the justices gave scenarios, everyday life scenarios, like lying about your weight on a dating app or browsing Instagram on a work computer. What were their concerns? So they're getting at this complexity. A number of those questions were directed at the government. And what I think the justices were trying to push at is the question of saying, well, wait a minute, isn't the way you want us, the court, to interpret exceeds authorized access, isn't that a whole lot more than just you're doing something that clearly, obviously, you're not supposed to? Clearly, obviously, you're not supposed to go into the file on the machine that is not for you. Aren't you now getting into things where a private entity can criminalize activities by writing a contract where a dating app could make it criminal? Think about that. Make it a federal crime to lie about your weight for the purpose of getting access to another user's profile or lie about your age. Making that the subject of federal criminal law is an incredible expansion beyond what Congress originally contemplated. And that's what the justice's line of questioning was getting. 
it seems like Justice Gorsuch narrowed in on that. He said that this risks making a federal criminal of all of us. And he called the case the latest in a long line of cases where the government has sought to expand federal criminal jurisdiction. Do you see that as the government trying to expand federal criminal jurisdiction? I can't speak to the government's motives. And it's actually very difficult, really, for anyone to speak to the government's motives because governments don't have motives in that kind of sort of a linear, continuous sense that we think of. Our Congress changes every two years. Our executive changes no less than every eight years. And the arc of cases that Justice Gorsuch was describing was over the course of a couple of decades. But the point still remains that even if there isn't necessarily motive there, there has been a trend in a direction What I think he was probably getting at was less about motive and more about a building of inertia, of an expansion of various federal criminal statutes that are used in prosecuting what more traditionally under our federalist constitution would be thought of as the province of the states to criminalize. And he and several of the other justices asked questions about that, about doesn't state law also criminalize this? My colleague, Professor Oren Kerr from the University of California at Berkeley, in his amicus brief, he talked about the fact that there are other state laws that criminalize some of these activities. And the federal criminal power, many courts over the decades and and centuries of the United States have looked at as something that should be used for its very specific purpose as outlined in the Constitution, not as something that is sort of a catch-all for when the states overlook something. My colleague, Professor Oren Kerr from the University of California at Berkeley, in his amicus brief, he talked about the fact that there are other state laws that criminalize some of these activities. And the federal criminal power Many courts over the decades and and centuries of the United States have looked at as something that should be used for its very specific purpose as outlined in the Constitution, not as something that is sort of a catch-all for when the states overlook something. Now, it's important to note here that this observation is not one necessarily of malintent. In fact, it's almost certainly not anything other than good faith. One of the reasons that federal criminal prosecutions are often brought is because federal investigative agencies generally have far more resources and far more ability to coordinate. And in the case of investigating computer crimes, for example, Those resources and interstate coordination can be key in successfully being able to not just investigate, but collect adequate evidence, apprehend, and convict someone who has perpetrated a crime. So what I would suggest leads to this observation, again, which I think Justice Gorsuch is correct, that there has been a trend in that direction. But what leads to it, I think, is just a good faith effort on the part of law enforcement to try and marshal whatever resources they can to deal with an incredibly growing problem. And I think what you saw from justice across almost the entire bench was a concern that the federal government doesn't have plenary police power and 
the court was expressing concern that if there aren't some limits in that regard, then those federalist protections, the separation of the power between the federal government and the state governments will start to erode. And there have been cases where the federal government has prosecuted people under this statute where it seemed a little bit stretched. For example, the infamous case of Aaron Swartz. There have been a number. The Aaron Swartz case, I think one of the things that we're missing in the Aaron Swartz case, and this is one of the reasons why it's not the example I most commonly use, is we didn't have a full prosecution trial verdict and full set of appeals. And that takes some of the story away. If you look at a case like the, at least within computer crime circles, equally infamous case of Lori Drew, or the case of Mr. Arnheimer, also known by his uh, hacker handle of Weave, those two cases illustrate the same type and set of concerns and have a fully developed record we can look at. In Lori Drew's case, not the, ju- the judge entered a finding of not guilty after the trial was concluded. That's really uncommon. And it was done in part because of this issue that we're talking about, that the platform in the mid-2000s MySpace could not arbitrarily write into its contract terms about what content users would put on the website and thereby criminalize the activities. There's a concept in the law that you have notice ahead of time of what is and is not criminal. And the justices talked a lot about this and the fact that allowing these private contracts to criminalize some activities and not others as a function of the contract rather than as something that can be figured out clearly from the law itself, doesn't put people on notice. And there's a similar problem in the case of Mr. Arnheimer. Um, and in that particular case, there's, uh, I think, a number of scholars, myself included, who viewed that the aggrieved parties went, shall we say, searching for a favorable prosecutor until they found one. And that was in large part why the Third Circuit Court of Appeals ultimately ended up rejecting the conviction on the unusual grounds that venue was improper. Do you think the potential fallout from a broad reading of this law is being exaggerated? Or are there implications, for example, for cybersecurity research and other areas that we don't think about normally? Yeah, this is an excellent question. I think it's one of the core questions that we have to deal with given the current wording of the statute and the degree to which the circuit courts of appeal have somewhat split on this question. It certainly is not an exaggeration in the context of can either criminal prosecutions or the civil analog. Remember, there is, and the, and the justices talked about this in their oral argument, there is a civil cause of action that a private party can bring. And that actually happened in an employer-employee case in the Middle District of Florida, I think in the late 2000s, might might have been early 2010s. And it involved somebody using Facebook too much at work. And the action was nothing more than a retaliatory action against someone who'd filed an equal opportunity grievance against their employer. 
the court struck it down. It saw it for what it was, but it illustrated, and I've written in an article about this fact, it illustrated much like the Lori Drew case, which Professor Kerr was involved in, and the uh, Arnheimer case. It illustrates the ways in which an expansive reading of the statute can be used to criminalize things which might or might not otherwise be criminal, but aren't criminal as a function of potentially violating the terms of a contract. What Ms. Drew did, terrorizing a child, that certainly, sh- I think, should be and is criminal under the statutes of, I believe, the jurisdiction was, was Missouri, where the child lived at the time. But she wasn't prosecuted under Missouri state law. She's prosecuted under a federal statute not designed for that purpose, and the justices talked about that a lot in the Van Buren case yesterday. So I think that in the context of overbroad prosecutions, yes. In the context of security research, I think the answer is we just don't know enough yet. And I think part of the reason we don't know enough is we just don't have enough cases to see how courts would confront that and whether courts would say, this clearly is not what Congress was talking about. In their questioning, most of the justices seem critical of what a broad reading of this statute might lead to. How do you think they'll come out? It's always hard to read the tea leaves with the United States Supreme Court, but I did not hear a bench that was very favorable to the government's position. And I think that that's correct from the particular disposition of this case. It's not often that when I hear oral argument for a case, I find myself more persuaded by the justices questioning than I was by the briefs and oral argument by counsel for the parties. But the justices questioning on the point of whether the activity in question was properly criminalized by a broad reading of a federal statute or by the states, which clearly have the power to make the act otherwise criminal. And in this case, I think it was otherwise criminal in Georgia. That was a very compelling argument. And it also fits nicely with what we call the rule of lenity, which is an assumption in criminal law that when there is ambiguity in a statute, it is construed in favor of the criminal defendant because we want to do everything possible to give people notice of what the government is telling them not to do by the commands in the criminal law. So if something is ambiguous, we say, well, the Congress should be more clear. And I think that's the direction that the justices seemed to be leaning was Congress has ample opportunity to make this more clear if they really want it to be this broad. That would be my guess, that this is not a court that's going to be favorable to the government's expansive reading. Where they're going to come out on the reasoning, I think we got a sense of how some of the individual justices are approaching it, but I did not see a consensus building on the reasoning for why an expansive interpretation of that particular clause of the statute is appropriate. So I think it'll be real interesting to see how the opinions themselves come down, but I don't see five votes for the government's position. I'm not even entirely sure I see three votes for the government's position. Thanks, David. That's David Thaw of the University of Pittsburgh Law School. Mira Global Asset Investment Company has successfully nixed a $5.8 billion purchase of 15 luxury U.S. hotels from Dia Insurance Company after arguing the coronavirus outbreak drained value out of the transaction. 
A Delaware judge concluded that Mire properly canceled the deal after the insurance company's response to the COVID-19 pandemic meant it couldn't meet conditions for closing the sale of the hotels, which included iconic properties such as the West End St. Francis in San Francisco and the Lowe's Santa Monica Beach Hotel near Los Angeles. This decision is the first in Delaware addressing the legal consequences of corporate counters to the pandemic and may provide a basis for other firms to walk away from deals they say were crippled by COVID-19. My guest is the lawyer who represented Mire, Mike Karlinski, global head of complex litigation at Quinn Emanuel. The judge wrote a 242-page opinion. Tell us briefly why he decided to cancel the deal. The starting point on this is that there are a number of cases that are right now pending in the various courts, mostly in Delaware, where you have deals that have been terminated in the post-pandemic or during the COVID world. And those cases have common themes to them, which are that under the governing document, the merger agreement or the acquisition agreement, there are clauses in there that allow a buyer to terminate under certain circumstances, either the failure of certain conditions having been satisfied or representations that were made that turned out to be false. This case is consistent with those cases in that the buyer here is seeking to terminate based upon failures by the seller to comply with the terms of the agreement. We went through a full trial. We litigated this case in a very, very expedited fashion over the course of three and a half months from start to finish in what would otherwise be a three-year litigation. But it was all compressed with the seller seeking to force the buyer to close and the buyer seeking to terminate the deal based upon failures under the contract. The court here, Vice Chancellor Laster, after a trial and hearing all of the evidence and reviewing all of the materials that were submitted, ultimately concluded that the buyer, our client, Mire Asset, had proven that the seller had failed to comply with various provisions of the agreement, which were conditions that had to be satisfied before the buyer would be required to close the deal. The judge wrote that the other side committed fraud about fraud. What was he referring to there? So one of the underlying questions in the case. This was a bizarre case because while we had the contract issues, prior to entering into the contract, uh, and by the way, just so we're all clear, the contract here was to acquire 15 luxury hotels in the United States and some of the top name hotels. Prior to entering into the agreement, uh, it became known to us, the buyer, that For six of the hotels, someone purported to transfer title to those hotels to their own name. And so, in other words, it raised the question as to whether the seller who was going to be transferring these hotels to us in exchange for roughly $6 billion in purchase price owned the hotels. So, at the time, the seller disclosed the existence of these six what were called fraudulent deeds deeds on the properties to the buyer, there was an explanation that was given to the buyer. We were told essentially, there's nothing really to worry about. This seems to be, or this is the work of a 20-something year old Uber driver with a criminal record. And it's really nothing more than a nuisance. So to assuage the buyer's concerns about, is there a problem here? Does the seller really own these hotels? We were given an explanation 
that was quite benign. Uh, and the essential message was, this is nothing really to worry about. What it turned out, in fact, and what was ultimately demonstrated through the course of this case and at trial, is that there was something much more sinister behind these deeds. There was an individual and an organization who was responsible for those fraudulent deeds, and that the seller here had a long history, over a decade long of litigation with this very sinister party. And that prior to signing the agreement, the seller actually knew that it was not the work of a 20-something-year-old Uber driver. It was not a mere nuisance as it was portrayed to us, but rather there was something much, much more sinister uh, and much more of a concern. And all of that was withheld from the, from the buyer. And so the buyer signed an agreement. It was uh, unaware of any of these underlying facts and details and the facts that the seller knew were concealed from it. So the underlying, the sinister person I'm referring to was a fraudster in the court's eyes. But what the court is referring to when it said a fraud upon fraud is that the seller here defrauded the buyer by withholding all of this information as to who was really behind these deeds and how big of a potential problem this really was. And we only learned about this, we the buyer, learned about these problems months and months later when um, some more of the facts started to come out. Uh, and that is what the court is referring to when it uh, referred to the seller having engaged in fraud about fraud. COVID-19. Was the judge's decision based more on that you perhaps couldn't get the proper title or was it problems because of the coronavirus outbreak? It's a great question, June. The court's decision is premised on two pillars. One pillar was uh, an argument that the, co- the coronavirus and the impact that COVID had on the hotels, and these particular 15 luxury hotels, was so significant that the seller started to make changes to the operations of these hotels in violation of obligations that it had under the contract. There's a provision which is standard in these contracts called an ordinary course covenant. And it basically says from the time I as a buyer signed the contract to the closing of the contract, which could take many, many months. Here, signing to closing was expected to be nine months or so. The seller, you're obligated to operate the business, these hotels, in the ordinary course consistent with past practice. Here, the seller made dramatic changes. It furloughed 5,000-plus employees, and it did a number of other things. And so one of the arguments, and this is the one uh, that was specific to COVID, was we said this was a violation of that covenant, and it gave the buyer an opportunity to terminate the deal. And the court agreed with us. So the court concluded, notwithstanding that these changes were made in the light of COVID, and they may have even been reasonable given COVID, they nevertheless violated the terms of the uh, merger agreement. That was the specific COVID issue. The other issue, which was the second pillar of the court's decision, related to this whole underlying title issue and the failures, as we talked about a moment ago, of the seller to make proper disclosures. And the way it all culminated was that One of the key things that as a buyer of real estate, 
let alone billions of dollars worth of real estate, always has to have both for its own protection and because third-party lenders who are going to be lending the buyer uh, proceeds to buy the deal is they have to have complete title insurance. When we buy a house, we buy title insurance to make sure that the title we're getting is, 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 is correct. It doesn't have uh, clouds on it. Well, so too in a deal like this. But because of all of these issues that were raised, both by the, uh, the sinister character plus the fact that there were all of these concealments by the seller itself that went on for months and surprises that were ultimately sprung upon um, the buyer here and the title insurance companies, when the deal was getting set for closing, the title insurers basically threw their hands up and said, we can't provide complete title insurance here. We have real concerns because of these issues that have not been properly addressed by the seller. We're just not comfortable. And so they did something which known in the industry as uh, raising exceptions. So they're saying we will provide title insurance for some, but not all. And the not all part was really, really significant. And so in the end, that was another provision in the agreement that failed. The court found that the seller was obligated to make sure that the actions it took allowed title insurance that fully protected the buyer here as to any of this underlying fraudulent deed scheme. And because the title insurers could not get comfortable uh, and therefore wouldn't give that complete insurance, the condition in the contract failed. And of course, also the lenders who would have been asked to lend $4 billion of third-party financing for this transaction, they too said, we're not comfortable. And they too said, if there's not complete title insurance, we can't go forward. So that second pillar was fact-specific to this case. And I think what compelled the court to the outcome as it related to this particular issue was the court understood contextually just how serious of an issue this was and why it ultimately led to the title insurers raising these exceptions and that the blame for it lies at the feet of the seller because of all of its concealment throughout the course of the deal process. Do you think that this case might in any way provide a precedent to torpedo other deals? Well, I, I don't like to use the word torpedo. I think, though, <laughs> understanding the question... To cancel other, other deals, deals Sure. I think the answer is that um, clearly this is a precedential decision on both the issues we won on and also one of the other issues that we didn't win on, but where the court, the court issued here a 240-page opinion in one of the most detailed and thorough analyses of these critical merger and acquisition-related issues. So to your question, uh, the, it, it, is, it is clear that many of the other cases that are pending, both in Delaware and throughout the country, and I dare say even outside of the United States, uh, are looking to Vice Chancellor Laster's decision. I think there were courts that have been waiting on this decision, knowing that it was coming and it was imminent. And now that it has been issued, I do think this will become one of the seminal decisions in the field of mergers and acquisitions litigation as it relates to the M&A clause, that is the material adverse effect clause, which again is a standard provision in these types of agreements. And as I said earlier, 
the ordinary course covenant that the court ultimately found in this case was violated. The court goes through in more detail and analysis than any other decision that precedes it uh, in going through and analyzing that ordinary course covenant. And so both the cases that are pending that involve terminated deals will be looking to this case for its precedential value and its guidance. But there's a second point here, which is the court's opinion in this case will become must-reading for any practitioner going forward that drafts merger and acquisition agreements, whether they be merger agreements, acquisition agreements. The court has provided clear guidance for, I'll call it the rules of the road and the concepts around these various provisions that every practitioner who prepares one of these agreements or negotiates one of these agreements must be aware of. You took over this case from another firm just three and a half months before trial. You were dealing with witnesses in China. So just give me a little bit about, you know, what went on behind the scenes, the the kind of workforce you had and how you dealt with all this. As we're all aware, we were dealing with all of this in the most of uh, unusual times. We were dealing with all of this in the midst of a global pandemic. And so, as I said uh, earlier, this was really three years of litigation compressed into roughly three and a half months. Delaware Chancery, Court of Chancery in Delaware, is one of the best equipped courts, and it's the, the court in which all of these cases tend to be filed because of choice of law and governing provisions. But the Court of Chancery is well equipped to deal with cases that move with extreme expedition. And in cases like this, remember, what is the seller here seeking? The seller is seeking to force my client, Mire, the buyer, to close the transaction. They literally want the court to issue an order that says, Mire, you must buy these hotels, and you must buy them at the contractual price of $6 billion, even though in a pandemic world, we know those hotels are going to be worth significantly less. And so in order to get to that potential outcome, things have to happen very quickly. You can't afford a three-year litigation. You can't afford a one-year litigation. If ultimately there's the potential for the court saying you must buy, then it has to happen quickly. So we understood that coming in, and it was just an extraordinary effort. I mean, we had a, a core team of 20 lawyers at my firm, and then we probably had another 40 or 40 or 50 lawyers who were assisting in the document reviews and the document productions. There, this was nothing short of a Herculean effort. In fact, Vice Chancellor Laster, in his opinion, very early on, points out just how extraordinary this was for both firms. I don't mean just my firm, but for the other side as well, and recognize that it was all being done remotely. So we had depositions of 50 witnesses. They were being done by Zoom. Many of those witnesses were located in either China or Korea. So it was standard fare for depositions to start because we were taking a deposition of a witness on their daylight time. So we were starting depositions here in New York at 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m. in the evening, and those depositions were running literally straight through the night. I had one deposition of a witness that ended at 6.52 a.m. It was sunshine, birds were chirping, my family was waking, and I was finishing up a deposition that had started at 6 p.m. the night before. But we did it, and my team did it, and I can't 
tell you uh, how proud I am of my team. It just was an extraordinary effort. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Mike. That's Mike Karlinski, Global Head of Complex Litigation at Quinn Emanuel. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. 